intro I'm quite happy with that I might just sit down and we're done for the day to be honest but no you've got me for a little bit of time we'll be okay um so yeah I'm like I'm really happy with that sorry I'm just a little bit uh that, that was quite good um so yeah I'm going to be talking a little bit about worship today um, and what worship means um for I guess us as Christians and, and where we go with it so when I say the word worship, I mean, that video is kind of given away, but if I say worship, and you can, I did this in a school, and no one said anything, I'm like, you're in a school, you should be used to participation, but this is a bit of congregational participation. When I say the word worship, what's like the first thing that jumps into your head? Just shout it out. Singing, music, yep, those kind of things. I think that's pretty fair. I think go to 99% of churches, and you say worship, and that's what's going to come out, and I, like, I think that's a pretty fair thought, to be honest. And as, as many of you would know here that I've kind of grown up around um, like creative teams at church and um, worship in terms of musical worship is a huge part of who I am. I've always been involved in it. And every church I'm in, you know, the, the, the first thought for me is to go into see how I can be a part of that creative team or how I can um, be involved, whether that's playing guitar or singing or worship leading or whatever it is. Um, and I find it such a great way to be involved at a church and to serve. It's, it's part of what I do, um, but also to enter into a space of worship where I can actually freely worship God and, and, and be in a place that's, um, yeah, I guess allowing me to, to freely be before God and offering up what I have. And it's not just me, obviously, and it's not just us here. I've got a, a couple of stats here. So Hillsong Worship has attracted over 7 million subscribers on YouTube. And the channel, so not Hillsong Worship, just the YouTube channel alone, has a net worth as high as $5.2 million. So it's just the YouTube channel. Um, they also have a yearly co uh, conference, which has about 30,000 people attend every single year. And musical worship is a really large part of that conference. Um, Maverick City Music, which some of you might know, which comes out of Elevation Church, um, just performed a worship song at the Grammys, so obviously a highly secular um, event, and it was a straight-up worship song, which was pretty cool. Um, on a more local level, um, scores of young um, and old uh, fill community halls, um, Thebiton Theatre recently, and, and um, really recently the Tabor Courtyard, um, for Ignite Ministries, which do worship nights every now and then. It seems very much that church and musical worship are very intrinsically linked. And most of the time when you hear a complaint or you hear some feedback from someone, it's generally that uh, the music was too loud or the lights were too bright. Um, probably not an issue too much here, but in other, ch in other churches it is, I guarantee you that. Um, or whatever the context is in the specific church you're in, there's always generally a problem with it. Um, and more often... Uh, more often than not, it's actually the style of worship that tends to be a really big problem. In fact, I'd say, uh, and this is just kind of anecdotally, that uh, one of the main reasons that people leave church can be the style of worship, which kind of seems really f funny when you think about it, um, given that we, what we know about church. But 
we're in a cultural moment where I think people are, are, are more likely to walk away from a church service and talk about how good the worship was, you know, what a fantastic time of singing and praise that was, rather than maybe the message that was the impact of them or the time of fellowship they had with other Christians. And, and like, I don't want to discredit the role um, that musical worship plays within a church. Um, you know, I think um, f- for us and our offering, it, it is a really big part of it. And I've experienced moments of this where I can feel the full force of the Spirit, sort of, I feel ministering to God. It's incredible times. And so, I, like I said, I really don't want to discredit what it is. But I think as Christians, by and large, we've kind of taken it a bit far. We've probably come a little bit too far on it. And, and if I'm being honest, I think it's really easy for it now to become an idol for a lot of people. Um, if God's having to compete with, you know, whatever the next best song is or the best riff or the catchiest lyric... Um, or the brightest lights, um, then we know something's a little bit off. At the start of this year, I came across a verse um, that's caused me to pause and reflect a little bit deeper on how I personally approached worship, and I hope that it'll come the same for you. For the longest time, I had just accepted that worship is purely when I kind of stand and I sing or I play or a worship lead or whatever it is, um, anything on Sunday that kind of gets labelled as that worship. And again, I don't think I'm alone in that. That that feels pretty common. Um, But this verse kind of made me stop for a moment and think about what is worship? What is worship to me? Again, don't mishear me. The the worship we do on Sundays and Fridays or in your car or the shower or wherever you like to do it um, is biblical and it is directed towards God. It's a really good thing most of the time. In bed, yep, definitely. However, I want to unpack the idea of worship a little and see what the Bible has to say about where we need to be directing ourselves when it comes to worship. So the verse I was referring to, and it was in the video, is Romans 12. And, and here Paul is writing to the Romans as a kind of um, systematic how-to-Christian letter. Um, it's a basic coverage of like, kind of doct- uh, like doctrine, um, God's righteousness and his plan for salvation, and then how the Romans, and I think very much for us, can live this out practically, which I really love. So um, firstly, a little bit of context. And I'm just going to ask, baby, could you stop pulling on that? Because it makes it very hard for me to read, all right? Thank you. Um, Paul was writing this letter from the Greek city of Corinth. Nero, a name that we should all know fairly well, had just become emperor of Rome at about 16 years old. And while we know where that story went, um, at the time of this letter being written, it was actually relatively peaceful there, which was fantastic. But clearly, for some reason, Paul decided that the church there needed to hear a fairly practical handbook on how to understand basic doctrine and how to live it out. It's interesting. Uh, the book was written to both Jews and Gentiles, but it did have a, a fairly focused um, view of what Gentiles should be doing. Um, and the church likely sprang out, out of Pentecost um, when uh, the Romans there would have heard Peter speak and seen the events and would have come back to Rome and created the church. And it, what's interesting about this book is that most of Paul's writings are to a co-worker in Christ or a church that he's planted, but Romans is a bit different. It stands out. He's actually not been to Rome, although he wants to go there, and he talks a little bit about that. So the, the feeling of uh, Romans as a book, I think, is actually a little bit different. Now, I love Romans. It's one of my favourite books, or maybe my favourite book, and it's the practical nature of it that sits out to me. I love how clearly things are laid out. And I say clearly in relative terms of the Bible, which is a book that includes talking snakes and like angels with eyes everywhere and stuff. So relatively, it's very straightforward. 
It's also worth noting that when Paul's writing this from Corinth, that wasn't necessarily a city that was like a safe haven for Christians. It wasn't this beautiful utopia where everything worked perfectly. It was actually a pretty full-on city and um, a lot of sexual immorality and um, all sorts of stuff. So Paul's speaking from a lived experience in this city, which I think is really important when he's talking into it. So um, back to the verse. So if you have your Bibles with you or your phones or whatever you've got, if you can open up to Romans 12, we're going to be doing Romans 12 verse 1 and 2. I'll read it out for you though, just so you don't have to read it yourself. Okay, Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, firstly, it's really important to note that just prior to this, um, much like the, the rest of Paul's writings, he's been talking about all that God has done for his people. So like I said before, he starts with some kind of basic doctrinal statements. He talks about Israel's um, journey of disobedience, essentially, um, but how God is still merciful through that. So chapter 12 and then the following chapters on from here are about how we are obligated to live, which flows directly from the gospel presented in the preceding chapters. And so I, I, for me, verse 12 is actually a really, a really pivotal, part, pivotal part of Romans. And I think it, it's something that um, I think is going to inform a lot of how we read um, both the first half and the last half of the book. So first thing, we see Paul is urging us, which um, the Greek word, and I'm sorry to any Greek scholars out there, but I'm going to butcher this, but that's okay, is um, parakalo. No one shocked, no one fainted from that, so that's okay. Um, now, what, what's really important about this word is it's not just like a bit of advice. It's not Paul kind of just saying, I'm just kind of suggesting this is something you do, or if you feel like it. Um, the word here, and I think that's why they've kind of used that translation, I urge you, is that it's actually quite authoritative. And it's crucial that we get this next part. And, he, and Paul uses it quite often through his letters. And so we know that we need to be paying a lot of attention to what this is. In view of God's mercy, again, this is referring to all God has done um, prior and Paul has described in the previous chapters. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what does Paul mean by bodies here? Is he, is he simply referring to physical bodies? I mean, this was a time, don't forget, that um, persecution of Christians was saying to happen and Paul, of anyone, knew that quite well as he was one of the main perpetrators of it before um, his conversion experience. Um, so, you know, is, is that what he's talking about? Is it is your physical body that you're wanting to sacrifice? Well, maybe. Um, I, I don't think he's not saying that. Uh, but I think he probably goes beyond that a little bit as well. One scholar put it this way. Genuine commitment to God embraces every area of life and includes body in all of its particu uh, particularities and concreteness. I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about what um, we can offer the kingdom. I don't think that's kind of where he's going. Paul isn't asking, um, you know, the, the best of us to be offering that up as that kind of um, first fruits idea which some people kind of go along. It's not that shining kind of Instagram Facebook version of ourselves that looks perfect. He's actually saying our whole selves, the totality of who we are. So that's the good, but it's the bad. It's the exciting and the messy parts. 
maybe the uncomfortable parts. How does, you know, how does that make you feel having to offer up your whole self to God? I know, you know, it makes me shift a little bit uncomfortably. Richard Foster has a really good quote about it. He says, The offering of ourselves can only be the offering of our lived experience because this alone is who we are. And who we are, not who we want to be, is the only offering we have to give. We give God, therefore, not just our strengths, but also our weaknesses, not just our giftedness, but also our brokenness. See, God requires all of us, and I think there's an honesty in that that we often gloss over in churches um, and, and society at broad. I mean, that perfect honesty which shows that we're actually quite broken in a lot of ways, and, and I think that honest offering is what God's looking for. Now, we can be comforted in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians about um, being strong in our weakness through Christ. And so this is kind of our chance to live that out. So what does Paul mean by living sacrifice then? If we're talking about our bodies as our totality, what does he mean by living sacrifice? On first glance, it kind of feels like a bit of a weird culty thing. Like you don't really hear like sacrifice and living and stuff when, you know, you're usually thinking about pentagrams and, and probably a bit of blood and all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and we've seen that kind of stuff play out in history and it doesn't go out so well. So maybe he's not talking about that. Maybe I thought he's talking about a really good like metal band name, Living Sacrifice. Um, which, funnily enough, there is actually a band called Living Sacrifice. It was like an early 2000s metal band. They sold it in Kurong, believe it or not. Um, feel free to look them up. Just maybe turn your speakers down a little bit before you're ready. But it is very good. But I don't think that's what Paul's referring to. Although I don't know what his music preferences were, to be honest. Just taking a guess there. The readers of this letter would have been quite familiar with the idea of sacrifice. Um, being Romans, they would have sacrificed to a deity. It was pretty commonplace for a first century Roman. So... Paul asking them to be a living sacrifice would have jumped off the um, page quite a bit for them, especially when we considered that they are a living, holy, and pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. For them personally to be that, that would have been quite a shock. Now, the living part, as a bit of an explanation, was likely speaking more about the spiritual state of the believers, not the literal life force um, as opposed to kind of like a a live and dead animal. It It was more about... Yeah, their their spiritual state. And the language, I think, is pretty nuanced here. Um, They are now alive to God through Jesus. And that's important to understand. And he finishes with saying it is our true and proper worship. Or another way of reading this is reasonable. I think I get where Paul is coming from here. He's saying that because of all God has done in view of his mercies, we are to offer ourselves because it kind of just makes sense. If we consider all God has done through us, through all of Israel's obedience, and we look at what we're to do, it kind of just makes sense that we would worship him. It just, it's rational. Another bit of context um, to understand is that he was was speaking directly to a culture that had a monarchy, an emperor who the Romans considered divine and was worthy of worship. So here, Paul is instructing the church that your true and proper worship isn't to the emperor, it's to God. Now, that might not be necessarily true today. We don't have an emperor um, in our setting. But I think there are plenty of things that we can put in place of that. Um, That, for some of us, might be like our political skews or views. Um, For others, it might be um, the style of musical worship that we do, or it might be anything else. I think all of these things in themselves fall short of what Paul is describing here. And I think if you have a a little think about um, your life, 
you can probably find something in there. It's not really that hard. Okay, moving on. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this is like one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of Romans. And, and Paul in general, his writings, it's so practical. Like it's, it's not all heady. It's, it's actually kind of what we can do. And I, and I love that. I love the practical application of it. Now, of course, as I kind of talked about before, we aren't referring to work-based salvation. It's not about what we need to do in order to be saved. But what it is talking about is what we should be doing as a response. There's a smart little link here as well. Paul's first talking about bodies, obviously in the first part, and now he's talking about minds, which I think is another indicator that Paul is referring to the whole of a person, not just one bit of them. You see, Paul's worry is that if people conform to the patterns of this world, um, both in a first century Jewish uh, Roman setting, but also in our setting as well, that it won't just be our outward appearance appearance that's changed it's actually going to be our whole lives that will be changed and so he says we need to be transformed and here is where the practicality really comes in paul is showing how key the mind is when you think about it the mind is central to every decision we make every action we take even our feelings or at the very least, our response to those feelings. They all start in the mind. And so Paul is emphasizing that our minds play a huge role in this. So we need to be wary of that, and we need to be transformed through them. We also need to understand that the way this was written, it was in present tense. It isn't a one-and-done type deal. It's a constant process of transformation you know, from what we were towards a more spiritual way of thinking and acting. So, how do we transform our minds? I mean, that's the question. Well, going back to Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians, he refers to the new covenant and how we are alive in Christ, which I think has a link through to this. So, in 2 Corinthians, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate, or another way of saying that is meditate, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I think what Paul is showing is that to transform our minds, we need to be meditating on God. And in doing so, we'll be slowly transformed into his image through God's glory and the Holy Spirit. And for our response of trying to know God and how we're actually to do that transformation, I believe sits within the spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer, reading the Bible, silence and solitude, fasting, and any other ones that you can think of that are going to allow you to slowly build more into the will of God. In doing these, we will be able to transform and renew our minds. The result of this, Paul lays out really plain and simple. Again, this is why I love it. We, are, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Because if we are always making our decisions day in, day out, based on what God's word, the Bible, um, and then his will will become our will. By aligning ourselves with God, then we will be constantly testing and approving his will with the knowledge we have gained. I mean, it's going to change the way that we think and act and align us more to the way that God calls us to live. So... While musical worship is great, and again, I really don't want to discredit it, I love musical worship. Um, It's something that we need to be continually involved in. I do want this to be a timely reminder 
that musical worship is one part of a much bigger picture. We need to be offering ourselves daily as a living sacrifice, renewing our minds over and over again and constantly growing in our discipleship so that we can better understand God's will and then we can live out that will in our lives. And for me, this is kind of the ball game. This is the, the purpose of why we're here is to understand, know and love God and then carry out his will in, those, uh, in our lives with those around us. So that might be work. That might be sport, that might be social groups, that might be your fellow Christians and your small groups. Whatever it is, our whole lives need to be a living sacrifice. Everything we do and everything we are needs to be working towards God. So I encourage you um, for this week and beyond that you take time each day, ideally in the morning, but that doesn't work for everyone, that you orientate yourselves toward God and just daily offer yourself. Now, to end... I want to take you through like a fun little exercise. I wanted to do it live, um, but with the kids around, as amazing as they have all been, um, that would be like doing meditation at a hardcore show. So I'm actually going to give you some homework to do during the week, which I think is going to be really important. And I'll um, get this emailed out to you um, so you can read through it and kind of work at your own pace and when you've got some time. Um, this exercise is from Dallas Willard's incredible book, Renovation of the Heart, which I, if you haven't read, uh, or if you have read, just read it again because it's that good. Um, and it's in the chapter of the body, and he details an exercise of offering your literal body. Now, as we've talked about today, it is more than that, but I do think it is the literal body, and I think that's a, a really good starting point to be able to direct your day, your week, your month towards offering your entire self. So listen along, I'll read it out now, and then when you get some time during the week, I want you to take some time, sit, slow down, and act this out, and I really encourage you to do it. I know sometimes these things can be a bit spooky and funny, but like, it will really make a difference, so I really encourage you, um, and you may even experience something that you've never experienced before. So take a moment, listen, as I said, it will be emailed out, and you can have a bit of a, a play through it when you get it home. So again, from, from Dallas Willard's Renovation of the Heart. I recommend that you lie on the floor, face down or face up, and explicitly and formally surrender your body to God. Take time to go over the main parts of your body and do the same for each one. What you want to do is ask God to take charge of your body and each part to fill it with his life and use it for his purpose. Accentuate the positive. Don't just think of not sinning with your body. You will find that not sinning will follow naturally from the active consecration of your body to God's power and his purpose. Remember, a sacrifice is something to be taken up to God. Give plenty of time to this ritual of sacrifice. Do not rush. When you realize it is done, give God thanks, get up and spend some time in praise. Willard suggests here that reading Psalms um, 145 to 150 is a good idea, but you could do whatever. You could get up and you know, belt out, shout to the Lord if you want or whatever you want. Just do something that you can get into. I think it's a really nice way to close that off and, um, yeah, to finish in a very um, practical and postured way of worship. He also suggests that you share this with a friend or pastor and ask them to bless what you've done. And I think there's a lot of value in that um, with fellowship, especially in our kind of middle-class society. We don't really talk about those things together. And so I'd very much encourage you to do that. Um, I've done this a couple of times, and I, I think I was amazed at the simplicity of it, 
um, but did find that it was just such a practical way and, and an engaging way for my mind to be able to offer myself um, physically. I, I really encourage you to, to go with it. And then it seeped into other parts as well, so I understand. So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here today, that um, we are in such a um, free nation that we can just come and be together in fellowship. I I thank you for your word that helps us um, not only think about things, but practically live things out. I pray that uh, moving forward, we can all um, better understand how to serve your will. And and in doing so, we actually are offering ourselves as this living sacrifice that um, Paul spoke about um, through your um, breathed word. Lord, we just, we just pray for each and every one of us that we would know in our lives where you call us to be and what you call us to do and that we can offer every part of our lives as a sacrifice towards your kingdom. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for all who you are and all that you do. And we just pray that your spirit is on everyone here, that moving into the week and the month and the year, that Um, Your spirit will continue to guide us and help us grow further into relationship with you and further understand who you are, your will, um, so that we can live that out. We pray this in your name. Amen.